0: I'm Luke Story.
1: I'm Christine Lauria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Chek.
0: I am Dr. Aaron Ugewin-McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart.
1: I'm Bliss Young.
0: I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury.
1: I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Risa Frise, et c'est le podcast du Gidicolo teach.
0: Hello, I'm Paul Cech, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast.
1: Enjoy. Welcome back, my podcast family. I'm super stoked to bring my guest today onto the show. You're listening to the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. My name is Nathan Riley. I'm an and I'm a hospice and palliative care doc, and I'm the host of this show. And I get to bring on whoever I want because it's my show. And people seem to be really digging the guests I bring on. What I do is I like to find people that have such an incredible wealth of knowledge and experience, but they're not out there self promoting themselves in such a way that everybody out there knows the importance of their work. And my guest today is no exception. It's Dr. Adam Blanning. He is the sitting president of the Physicians' Association of Anthroposophic Medicine, or he's a past president. I think that they're currently changing the guard right now. But regardless, he's one of the primary faculty that I've been working with in my anthroposophic medicine training. And he's, he's a practicing family medicine doctor through integrative and anthroposophic medicine practices in Denver. He's like the head honcho of my postgrad training in anthroposophic medicine. And he's got incredible insights into how we can reimagine the human experience and how we can heal the person through the lens of the fourfold human of Rudolf Steiner. That's the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, or you could say the physical, the etheric, the astral, and the I. And so I've done Eurythmy with Adam. We have had lunch together multiple times, got to love him. And I figured, hey, Why don't we have him come on and just talk a little bit more about what anthroposophical medicine is, and maybe we focus a little bit on fevers and how we've got this regard for fever as necessarily bad and unforgiving, et cetera, versus a technique of maybe helping the body heat up. If that's what the body's trying to do, maybe there's a reason that you're getting a fever, and then we can gradually bring it down after it's plateaued for a period of time. Um, He's also an author. He wrote a book called Understanding Deeper Developmental Needs, Holistic Approaches for Challenging Behaviors in Children. I've got a, a copy on my bookshelf here. And he's been on faculty of multiple medical schools. This guy knows what he's doing, and he's also just a gem of a human being. Adam Blanning. But before we get into the interview, I want to tell you just a little bit about the companies that make this podcast possible. The first is Fullwell. They make the best prenatal vitamins on the market. They've got a men's virility vitamin. All of my fertility clients, all of my pregnancy clients are all taking Fullwell because it's the only brand that I trust. They also make a Nourish Nerves tonic and they make a fish oil. So all of which are relevant to your fertility and pregnancy journey. I am so grateful to have them here because they're fully in alignment With What I do and how I show up in my own practice. So if you want to try out Fullwell's vitamins, I suggest going to the website and buying one of each. Go to fullwellfertility.com. Use code BELOVED10. You'll save 10%. The other sponsor that has really, really made this journey possible is Bioptimizers. Wade Lightharder and his team at Bioptimizers have produced a wide variety of some of the, if not the best supplements on the market all through a very, very thoughtful lens around not just what you need from vitamins, but what you don't need, meaning all of the additional fillers. You don't find those things in Fullwell. You're not going to find them in Bioptimizers. I wouldn't bring a company onto the show if it was going to be filled with a bunch of other junk that's going to make you sick in other ways. One product I'm really digging that Bioptimizers has recently released is their Sleep Breakthrough. It's got a wide variety of amino acids, magnesium It's loaded. You're going to take two to four scoops of this powder, which actually has a nice taste. Put it in eight ounces of water, mix it up, take it about 30 minutes before bed. And it's going to help ease you into sleep. It's got GABA. It's got the amino acids. It's got magnesium. Don't, Go to the store and buy 10 different supplements to help you sleep. You got to maximize your sleep hygiene and then find one product that really works. And man, does this product work. It knocks you right out. If you want to try Sleep Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, go to bioptimizers.com holisticobgyn and use code BELOVED. You'll save 10% on your purchase. Next up, could not have a podcast without BirthFit as your sponsor. BirthFit. This is a collective of women for women where you'll receive personalized coaching, pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. Specific coaching for you, the woman in you, growing a baby, recovering from having a baby. You're gonna learn about your core and your pelvic floor function and exercises you're going to learn about nervous system balancing through strengthening conditioning and they have the B community. The B community is an online platform again for women by women whereby you can ask questions, you can provide insights, you can learn from other people who have the exact same questions and they're in the same life process as you. That's the B community through Birthfit. I love everything about this company and I'm so grateful that they're here because there's so many people out there getting personalized coaching From trainers that have no idea how to coach women who are pregnant. I mean, period. They just don't know. And you don't know what you don't know. So go to BirthFit. It's like not even expensive. In fact, if you want to check out their B community, use code BELOVED at birthfit.com. You'll get one month free access. And it doesn't just include the personalized coaching, the community, et cetera. You're also going to get twice monthly webinars from renowned experts in the space. I was recently invited on. We haven't recorded yet, but. I'm very much looking forward to speaking to their community because these are people that are just like you. They think like you. They walk like you. They talk like you. You're going to find your people here. So go to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED. You'll get one month free access to the Birthfit B community. And last but not least, Organify. How could I not talk about Organify? Again, I don't bring companies onto my show as sponsors. I've turned away a lot of companies, but Organifi will never turn them away because Organifi makes some of the cleanest, most responsibly raised stuff in the nutrition and supplement world. They've got a whole product lineup that is non-GMO, USDA organic, gluten-free, glyphosate residue-free. They've got it all going on. Drew Canole and his team have put a lot of thought into how they formulate these blends. And this time of year, they've got a product that I'm especially... Excited about it's their gold chocolate latte. Gold chocolate latte is like their gold latte, but now you have got the smack of chocolate. And so, what you're going to find in here is turmeric, an ancient restorative root that contains loads of curcumin. You're going to get a ton of antioxidant power there. Cocoa rich in polyphenols. It's got tons of trace minerals, got lots of natural magnesium and whole food form. Go figure. This helps boost mood, focus, aids in sleep, it gives you a healthy response to inflammation. If you're not picking up on this, this is a perfect compliment to the other brands that I'm supporting here. Lemon balm, classically known as a calming herb. You've got reishi mushroom. You've got turkey tail. Both are potent, immune boosting, adaptogenic functional mushrooms blended right in there. Ginger, coconut milk, and then Ceylon cinnamon, and of course you're going to get a little bit of black pepper, some magnesium chloride. There's some acacia in there. Loaded. If you want to try any of Organifi's products, I love their gold chocolate latte. But even out of season, I like their gold latte. It's like one of my go-tos. Their gold chocolate is available for a limited time only, though. So go to Organifi.com/beloved. You'll save 20% on your purchase. And while you're there, pick up some red juice and green juice. You're going to be Operating on all cylinders, if you adopt something like Organify into your daily life. All right, I think I've said enough. We got one more sponsor, but we'll wait until the mid episode break for that. Without further ado, here's my friend, my mentor, and a very smart and kind human, Dr. Adam Blanning. Adam, welcome. Dr. Adam Blanding's here, and this is a bit of a special interview for me because you're also one of my clinical mentors in my anthroposophic medical training, which I just started a couple weeks ago, effectively. (laughs) So, welcome, Adam, to the show. I'm going to have you introduce yourself, but I do think that this is maybe a little bit heavier of a conversation, a little bit more thoughtful because, you know, anthroposophic medicine is a little confronting, I think, for people it shouldn't be, but it is sometimes for people who work in the allopathic model. So let's just pause and I'm going to guide us through three nice deep breaths. And if you're listening, I think you can join us. It'll be a nice practice to get ready for a, a very rich conversation. So I'd like everybody just to keep their feet planted flat on the floor, keep your shoulders back. Kind of sit upright so that you feel like you're kind of being pulled by a string at the base of your skull up to the ceiling. And start by blowing all of the air out of your lungs as far as you can go. And breathe in. And exhale. Let's do two more just like that. all that old air out. because so we got some heat coming to you today with Dr. Adam Blanning. Adam, thanks for joining me today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you are sort of born of the allopathic model, but you found anthroposophic medicine very, very early on in your training and career. So maybe just give people a brief understanding as to who you are and what you do.
0: Well, I'm Adam Blanning and I'm a family doctor in Colorado and I love anthroposophic medicine because I think it's very optimistic,
1: Mm -hmm. actually,
0: which is really something that's desperately needed. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) To just sort of look at how we accompany people in health and illness, that it's a developmental process and a companioning process. And I really learned about anthroposophic medicine when I was first in high school, that I met some people who practiced it. I didn't really understand anything about what they did but they seemed like really nice people. And they spoke about things in a deeper way that I just felt there was some truth there.
1: Was that during your medical training as an MD? Well, I had first glimpses of it already
0: even before college. Then while I was doing medical school, I had a chance to be doing some study and mentorship with very beloved longtime physician, Philip and Keo. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of medical studies, there was a meeting that I tried to attend once a week, which just was a chance to think in a totally different way, sort of a deeper way and a flexible way. And so I did standard training for family medicine and graduated and worked at New York Medical College teaching family medicine and then at University of Colorado for a few years teaching family medicine and was really still interested in this more integrative holistic model. Sure. So I was doing both for a while. And then at a certain point, this was also influenced by family needs and birth of children and things like that, sort of rearranging priorities. But I felt, gosh, I am sitting in a teaching situation where I sit in the back room of a big clinic and I can spin fantastic thoughts about what should be done for somebody. And then I realized, oh, but I haven't actually seen who this person is. And that felt kind of abstract. And then, as I also started working with more holistic and integrative principles, realizing that there was a broader way to probably support someone in what they were going through, which would be different than prescribing five different allopathic (laughs) drugs. Yeah. Which could be things very simply like having trouble falling asleep, bad menstrual cramps, reflux. Yeah. And sort of going, oh, Not going to sleep. That's a kind of a cramp where you can't let go of the day's impressions. And a menstrual cramp is a cramp being able or not being able to so easily let go of products that aren't needed still. And then asthma is kind of a respiratory cramp. And this little bit of a constitutional picture was fascinating for me because I thought, oh, we're so used to seeing the little single parts that we address each one of those independently. And We do it pretty abstractly without seeing who a person really is. So for me, when I kind of got to that point, it made me say I just need to do something that really feels honest and nourishes me as well. So I've been doing anthroposophic medicine in a very humble private practice for about the last 20 years, but have been involved in training programs for physicians and other kinds of healthcare practitioners in anthroposophic medicine, directing programs for the last seven or eight years. And been involved in teaching for most of those 20 years of practice. So it's always nice to see where people are coming from. Because an interesting thing is sometimes you go through an idea and somebody says, Oh, that just makes sense. Because that's something that I've been thinking about or experiencing for a long time. And I just didn't quite have the vocabulary for it.
1: Yeah, before we started recording, I brought up some of the early chapters in a very, I think, accessible training manual for anybody who's interested in this topic. It's called Foundations of Anthroposophical Medicine. It's edited by two German authors, Goose Vanderbe or it sounds actually Dutch, uh, Maartje. They're, they're, they're
0: actually Dutch. They're both it's Dutch. Okay, by Dutch training program.
1: Yeah, there we go. So, and one thing I wanted to sort of remind people because we're going to get in the weeds in this conversation is that if you're an allopathic doctor. And let's say a lot of people have read Victoria Sweet's book, Slow Medicine, and she describes in that book, the fast medicine approach that we all as allopathic doctors learned, which is still practiced in many, you know, hospitalist sort of routine daily lives, which is you go into the hospital at 637, you've got your big cup of coffee, the nurses bring you all of the lab reports, all of the imaging, or you bring it up on your electronic health record, the nurses give you report, you've now rounded on maybe 12 patients. And then you've come up with an assessment and plan just from that objective data. And then you might have five minutes in the room because you've got so many work demands. This fast medicine seems efficient, but then it misses out on the experience between you as the healer, the practitioner, and the person seeking help. And so if through that lens, if we were to improve upon the allopathic model, which so many people, as you mentioned, are becoming somewhat cynical about because we don't see many improvements despite throwing more and more money into this fast medicine model, could we improve upon allopathic medicine by including some of the principles of anthroposophic medicine? And when you read a book, like one of these introductory texts, you realize that, and I'll actually read a line here, it is not a matter of one thing replacing something else, but of something more inclusive absorbing something less inclusive. So when we are talking about some of these kind of, they seem perhaps radical or woo-woo or whatever. I mean, people use all sorts of words. Anthroposophic medicine is very sort of admittedly is saying, hey, we're inclusive of all the other practices. This is a more unified model to help us orchestrate all of these different modalities, which have done a lot of good. It's not meant to replace it or to say that allopathic medicine is wrong or that this is more validated or anything. This is really a matter of what are we lacking from the experience between the healer and the healee. (laughs) Uh And so that was very validating for me to start reading these texts under the direction of you and your other faculty at PAM, which is the Physicians Association of Anthroposophic Medicine, if I recall. It's a tongue twister. Because, you know, like many other people, we get through all of this training, we look back and we're like, gosh, that really, just like you said, it's not really serving me. I don't really seem to be doing much to help my patients. I'm just adding more medicines or recommending more imaging or doing more surgery. This perhaps provides a deeper toolkit, so to speak, and can be very validating for those who feel like something's missing here. This isn't really what I signed up for. So I wanted to start by just acknowledging and Reminding everybody that this may be confronting, but this can also be very validating if you can just approach the conversation with an open heart.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So, Adam, anthroposophical medicine, it's a tongue twister. It stems out of the work of Rudolf Steiner, who was a 19th into the 20th century philosopher scientist. A Christian mystic is another term that's been applied to him. And when you read the breadth of his work, It's hard to pick little pieces out and apply those practically, but the body of work of anthroposophic medicine came out of his work and in conjunction with Ida Wegman. if I have any part of that history wrong, please correct me. (laughs) What would you tell somebody? You're in an elevator, you know, hey, I practice anthroposophic medicine. What would you talk to them about? And yeah, how would you describe that to them?
0: Right. Well, I think we could say that it is an integrative medical system. It is patient-focused. It's multidisciplinary. Those are all words that can be used for a lot of things, but all of those are true. It also includes a lot of natural therapies and natural medicines, which are herbal, which are mineral, which are potentized. But there's a broad breadth of natural medicines, and really, as a very special appreciation of the natural world and how the human being relates to the natural world. We're actually connected with this world around us, and then I would say. The most core aspect is really trying to build a picture of the whole human being. And when you start looking how big that picture is, that varies from different traditional healing methods, but almost all of them, there's really this whole bridging from very physical, testable, measurable aspects to what we could say are more functional biochemical aspects to emotional and social aspects, to really developmental, moral, and
1: I will say deeply spiritual aspects. Mm. So let me pause you there because you used the word holistic before, and a lot of people associate holistic with natural. That's a part of holistic. But when we think of the original, the root, holism, we're talking about the whole person is not relevant without each of its individual constituent parts. And likewise, for each of those parts, it means nothing outside of the whole organism. Not necessarily, anyways. And that's, I think, what Rudolf Steiner has fourfold sort of understanding of the human experience, the human being- really does kind of fold into this definition of holism very naturally. So since I have holistic in my practice name, a lot of people just think it means natural, but it actually means far more than that. So sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to insert that because the word holistic has become so such a buzzword. But continue. <laughs> We're still in the elevator. We're on the tenth of twenty floors. <laughs> and I guess holistic
0: sometimes means alternative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or it's easy to think of it that way. But this is something that's actually totally different than a modern medical approach. And what is even more of a mouthful is that originally anthroposophic medicine was described as, it should truly be called anthroposophically extended medicine. Mm. So the goal really is that you need to have completed a conventional medical training. You need to have gone through all of that. You need to understand how the body works. You need to understand anatomy. You need to understand sick patients. And really, this is not a rejection in any way, but this is an elaboration of that learning and of all of that science. And yeah, I think the holistic picture, when you get up into the emotional realm, that's not so hard. Although we tend as a medical culture just generally to kind of separate things into their physical illnesses and there are emotional psychiatric illnesses. They are two pretty different realms. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, You can get bounced back and forth because somebody will say, Well, this is not a physical problem. You need to go talk to so and so. And they will say, Well, I don't think that this is in my domain. I really think you need to go and get some testing done. That's right. So we're not so good at bridges, but fields like psychoneuroimmunology are really interesting. Study about sense of coherence and resilience is really interesting to say, How do these bridges go back and forth between? what we experience in a conscious way emotionally spiritually and how does that affect our immune system our digestive system processes of healing so there's a lot of bridging is an essential part of anthroposophic medicine but i would say an additional piece that's really important is trying to recognize that each person is really a unique spiritual being and that individuality is there all through a person's lifetime With really a picture of that aspect, that sort of spiritual kernel being there, coming into a body, and that aspect continuing after death, which I'll just say that can make a big difference in terms of sometimes we look at physical illness and say, oh, this is severe, or this is greatly limiting, Mm -hmm. or debilitating, or that's something that's not working perfectly. And that's really looking on the physical level. But I think within anthroposophic medicine, there's the goal to really look behind that and say, well, who is the individuality who's experiencing this process and how do we not lose sight of them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In this textbook that I just brought up, there was a a whole chapter. It's a brief history of biomedical thought and it talks a lot about throughout the ages, the past several centuries, before we had all the fancy imaging and whatnot, some of the leading thinkers, philosophers of the time, namely Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes, gave us this impression that our senses were easily confused. And so we need to take the senses out of the equation. You know, Francis Bacon, that was like his whole shtick. And then of course, Rene Descartes, I think was probably the linchpin in what we now consider modern medicine in the sense that if it's measurable, then it must be important. In other words, everything can be reduced to the axioms of mathematics, which in some regard, that's actually helpful. But Uh do we miss out on the experience of the person, which is a dynamic experience? It's not a static thing like we would expect to see chopping off a piece of tissue and looking at it under a microscope. There is a dynamic process unfolding in front of our eyes. If we are not using every one of our senses or even our extrasensory senses, which we'll get into because that was sort of Rudolf Steiner's contribution extending this conversation further, what could we learn more about ourselves in this person, in our role right now, at this moment in time, considering that we're perpetually in a moving stream and you're never stepping in the same spot twice. You're always in a separate part of the river, so to speak. So we've gotten all the way here and anthroposophic medicine was introduced in the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century. Given just what we've said already, how did this approach change your practice I and mean, you went through the allopathic model how did you start incorporating some of these basic principles or had you already been and like you or like me you kind of felt like a validation as to how you were already doing things well it was definitely a process of evolution there were certain pieces that just felt
0: oh good i feel more at home with that the way it has changed things i mean i can say in some very practical ways it's asked It's forced, it's encouraged me to listen in a different way. So my review of systems has shifted. I would say on a daily basis, I really try and think about how can someone be involved in their own healing process and what's important to them. Because if I'm just looking at physical chemical measures of their physiology, sometimes they're right on board, but sometimes they're really not. And they're actually feeling like they're not being seen at all. They're just being told what to do based on an analysis of them. But it's not really them. So, building some connection and really trying to see what is their goal. And, you know, at some point, I remember hearing the statistic that 50% of prescriptions are never filled. Hmm. That's interesting, (laughs) (laughs) which is eternally kind of fascinating and a little bit of forehead slapping in terms of we can feel like we're doing a huge amount, but if people aren't really invested in the process, then we're kind of spinning wheels, but I don't know how much we're helping them change. And then I guess where people are at different stages, I really look at differently. And I can just give a quick example of there are some predictable biographical rhythms. One of the most pronounced ones is that about every seven years, we go through sort of a reorientation, which I want to say comes more from a place of what is my intention in life? And what am I going to do with myself for the next seven years? And on the one hand, that looks like a crisis because a lot of people have anxiety symptoms or sometimes depression symptoms. But really what they're trying to do is make an inventory of what they're involved with and see what are the big priorities for me right now. And once I learned about those rhythms and started watching for them a little bit, so it's between age six and seven, age 13, 14, age 20, 21.
1: These seven-year epics.
0: Yeah. These seven-year epics. Yes. I mean, last week I saw two people in a row. One was 34 to 35, and the other was 41 to 42. And it would have been easy to say, oh, this person is having really an emotional breakdown. But by describing a process of saying, sometimes we need to loosen and reevaluate in order to find what's the appropriate next step, and they were so happy <laughs> because dissolution is not really a part of most medical approaches. To say, sometimes we just got to let things go and have it be a little confusing or messy. But that's because we're taking a growth step.
1: Yeah. That's huge. Just a part of growing up, so to speak, or growing older for that matter.
0: Absolutely. Or there's another one when children are about nine, that they really start to become aware of themselves as unique individuals. And it's really classic that they start being fearful. They're worried about robbers. They're worried about tsunamis. They're worried about car accidents because they suddenly feel that they are really their own person in the world.
1: Mm, That personal responsibility piece starts to really sink in.
0: Yeah. And they feel that they're separate from their parents and their teachers. So some of those aspects have just been huge. And then another big part of the way my practice changed was really trying to understand about natural medicines. And the kinds of correlations to say, oh, there's a certain process that happens in our own body and there are certain processes that you see manifest in the natural world and they can work in a good way together. So I would say the biggest part of changing practice is just opening to new tools and really listening and also trying to see what is somebody really needing and wanting in the process.
1: I just spent a week with you and the whole American crew in Chestnut Ridge for training week, which is something that any U.S. physician, do you take residence as well if a person's in residency? Absolutely. Medical students? Dental, medical doctors. I mean, there was nurse practitioners. It was a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds. That was probably the most beautiful part about the week. And it was an intensive week of training at a beautiful center adjacent to an arrhythmia center, which we won't get into here, but that's one of the modalities, the healing modalities within anthroposophic medicine. There was a Steiner, a Waldorf school. They had a little biodynamic garden. And before I ask you about the fourfold path, that was really kind of new to me that week. I mean, I'd heard about it, but I didn't really get it. So we'll get into that. But I also wanted to comment a little observation that I remember coming home with telling my wife, she was like, well, how was it? Did you learn anything new? And I mean, I'm always doing something new. I've got so many books and I was like, you know, for the first time ever, I think I spent more time studying a plant than I spent studying a human. Uh (laughs) It was equally valuable. Can you briefly maybe as a segue into the fourfold model of the human being, can you talk about the role of plant study and perhaps even some of Steiner's inspiration from the work of Goethe?
0: Absolutely. So plant study is included as a regular part of the medical training. Now, if you studied every plant in depth, that could take years, although that's a nice goal because it's pretty interesting once you've spent some time studying a plant that you have a different relationship to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I could just describe that observation process, which is, it relates a little bit to fast medicine. So usually, and at least I'll say this personally, if you have some relationship to plants, but it's not hugely developed, you might look at a plant and go, oh, That's a sunflower. Ding, I know sunflowers.
1: Great, delicious seeds, big yellow whatever. Like my grandma used to have them. Yeah, you have a personal relationship with it, and that requires no study. (laughs) You've got a personal relationship, and you know that, oh, yeah, there's sunflower oil,
0: and the toasted seeds are good, and they can grow really tall. But sometimes our observation really stops at that point. Or we might see a different kind of plant and go, oh, that's unusual. I wonder what that is. I've never seen that before. And we might investigate further or we might just say, this is my usual level of engagement and I know it or I don't, and then I move on. And really a fascinating part of the plant study, especially doing it in a group, is looking and trying to describe what you see without immediately putting it in context. And if we talked about a sunflower, you might or might not notice that the seeds that are in the center of the flower, are in a spiral pattern. Or you might notice the flower so beautifully that you forget to even look and see what the leaves are like. Or you might look at the leaves, but not the stem. And you might have no idea about what the roots of the sunflower look like. So there's this process of really trying to say, what are the details that I see specifically? And going around and sharing those in very objective ways. There is yellow delicate structure that goes off the end of the round part of the plant which is a kind of a very specific way of saying there's a yellow petal on a sunflower but it makes you look differently and then there are steps about trying to think of this plant how it grows what it will look like next month what did it look like the month before which is really getting into a time element thinking about vitality thinking about processes of growth and then as you go through these steps you start to get an impression, what might be the personality of this flower? If it was a movie star, what would it be like? Or if it was an artist, or because there's, there's really a wholeness, we can see there's a beingness about a sunflower. We like sunflowers for a specific reason. And what's fascinating with many healing plants is that this actually works best if you know nothing about the plant, is that by going through this process at the end, you start to have a feeling for what is the activity of this plant. And very often, it correlates just incredibly with traditional therapeutic uses of the plant. You can come to know what something can be helpful for by encountering it and really learning it and loving it and engaging. And those things are often confirmed through a biochemical analysis. You can find what are the active components, but it's this much deeper relationship to it that actually i think it's more alive than a lot of what we do in sure medical training and sometimes in even patient encounters is really this kind of attention
1: i think if we approach this type of conversation from a very limited allopathic or let's say biochemical sort of lens you end up you know being very confronted by the idea that people living way long ago like we're talking ancient sumer you know earliest written human history that people were still finding therapeutic uses. People were like, how could they possibly have known what that did? Or let's look at many indigenous you know, First Nations groups within the United States. They're still carrying on traditions, perhaps, of using various herbs or preparations or whatever in order to gently heal various pathologies. What you're really referring to is this sort of signature, this archetype of what this thing means in nature. And how could that... Given our experience or even just our observations, how might that play in to our healing process or our diagnosis and management of disease? I don't think we, you know, it's sort of like saying breastfeeding is good. The docs at Harvard said it was good. They did an analysis. Well, do we really need that to know that this works? Perhaps it helps confirm what we've found. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in Western medicine, I think we kind of start there. We like, we have to prove it, and then we can start to use it versus, hey, if it's useful, why don't we try to figure out why it's so useful? It's a bit of a paradigm shift, kind of a 180 degree turn in some regards. I don't think that they're exclusive to one another or that they should be divorced from one another, but it is a very, very different approach. And I will tell you for your listeners that when Adam was guiding us through this experience, it wasn't until maybe day five or six that we actually learned what the type of plant was that we were looking at. And we were also there in the early spring before this plant had really generated any new growth. So we've seen how it has developed over time. And I will say as a student of this, that it was almost like doing a physical exam for the very first time in my life, not knowing what pitting edema was. All it was was a a matter of observation. You're going to touch it. Is it cold? Is it warm? Is the skin discolored? Does the skin look healthy? Is there hair growing on the skin? Are there ulcers on the skin? Is the skin pitting? Meaning when I press my finger into the skin, does it rebound quickly or does it fill with blood really quickly or does it stay depressed? I'm not doing a good job of this based on how we did it for the plant. But the point being that when we all started this practice, we actually started with plant study. And then we developed our notions of what pitting edema means when the skin stays impressed and we just jump to conclusions that they have some sort of, you know, renal insufficiency or their hearts in a state degree of failure. And we jump to that as opposed to actually just spending time observing to the credit of most doctors. You may not have the time to do all of that whenever, you know, administrators and whatnot are pressing you to see more people. But there is something to be said for just being with the tissue, or the fingers, or the joints, or with a stethoscope, or with your ear on somebody's chest, and just being with it, and just allowing the observations to unfold without bringing our experience and our judgment, I believe is the word that is used in a lot of these texts, to the conversation. Yeah. Well, one aspect is, I think we
0: sense each other on a lot of different levels. I think we have a lot of senses doing patient consultations through telehealth it's an interesting phenomenon it can be really helpful it also is limited i work with lots of children seeing how a child moves how they talk how they engage with you that tells you a lot about them yeah aspects of warmth of physical warmth of social warmth of interest warmth all of those things i think we sense very much i do feel that we get Input on this bigger level very quickly when you see somebody and your doctor self says, sick, not sick. Because there are times that you look at somebody and you just say, Ooh,
1: this is not good. Yeah. Something's up here.
0: Something's up. And maybe they're not even complaining of something yet so much, or it's pretty vague, but you say, Ugh, This makes me concerned. And other times somebody's complaining, but you have the feeling, actually, there's time. We can work on this. It's not an acute emergency. I think one aspect of this larger observation also is trying to sense, and I'll use the example of temperature, if somebody's temperature is elevated, is it because they are at the beginning of an illness or is it because they're at the end of an illness?
1: Mm. Or Let's talk about fever because we were going to get into <laughs> that anyways, but this yeah. is one of your really, really I'm not going to say you're an expert. I don't think you would ever describe yourself as an expert, but you're very, very thoughtful. curious. (laughs) You're very curious. curious. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I like spending time on PubMed doing different kinds of searches around warmth and fever. Because what's fascinating is that you can find some really exciting studies and insights that sort of show this whole bridging activity that are not done by somebody in a specific integrative or holistic or complementary medical stream. These are just regular observations. And so I like to share and teach about this a little bit. But one of the things that blew me away was 2020 was the study that showed that actually our assumption that normal body temperature is 98.6, which is, (laughs) I don't know how many things are written in stone but that's a pretty solid one. <laughs>
1: 120 over 80 and 98.6. That's a healthy person. <laughs> that's
0: what you want, is that the study looking at the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. and that starting with Civil War veteran cohorts, the Haynes study in the 1970s to more recent, I think it's a Stanford group that is studying, showing that average body temperature has been dropping. And probably an average human body temperature right now is around ninety-seven point nine or ninety-eight. And that's just as amazing that we go by this is this is the absolute written in stone truth, and yet we're off by
1: six tenths, <laughs> seven tenths of a degree. <laughs> which is a pretty big difference. Yeah. I will add, you know, over the years of COVID, when I was still working in the hospital system, mm-hmm. which was short-lived, it was about six months during COVID that I was still in a hospital every single day going in. And of course They scan your head every day. And I also ride a motorcycle or I bike, and you have a big, thick helmet on your head. So I would take it off and be sweaty and warm, and I would still clock in at sometimes below 96. Like in one time, they actually called, they thought I was maybe septic. And I was like, I'm definitely not septic, guys. (laughs) But When we have these strict parameters, they got concerned. And of course, I'm healthy as can be, but I was like 95.8 one day and they were like, I don't think you should come into work. And I was like, I promise you I'm okay, but do whatever you got to do. And I don't know if we've actually had a universal screening like that, maybe ever. You know, I mean, perhaps maybe since that original work was done. But we have all this data. I wonder if we did look at all that COVID data of swabbing people at CVS and the library and whatever, you know, for a while, everybody was doing it. And I wonder if we took that and got some averages, I wonder what we would see. It would probably be very, much more wide ranging than 98.6. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's maybe a study you can do, Dr. Blanning. Well, (laughs) there's a UK study that they tried to
0: establish what's probably a normal body temperature now. And it was around that 97.9. I mean, in looking at these studies, I also learned, which was never mentioned to me in medical school, that there's such broad variation in body temperature over the course of 24 hours. Yeah, of course. Again, it's about three quarters of a degree that goes up and down just based on the time of day. In clinical practice, I learned that. And I think also from my family that, you know, a child has a fever and they seem cool in the morning and you think everything's good. And then it's the late afternoon or evening and their body temperature goes up. Bam. And the they're temperature hot. returns. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, oh no, I thought they were better and now they're sick again. But actually, that can very naturally be part of this daily alternation in temperature. And so if we take this alternation in temperature and then we think about fever, very classically defined the beginning of a fever when the body temperature is trying to go up and that's maintained for a certain number of days, it's all regulated by the thermoregulation centers of our brain. A temperature is really dangerous. A high temperature is dangerous if we are in an environment where we can't regulate our body temperature. So if you're sitting in a sauna and you have a fever, that's not good. Hmm. But if you can sweat and you can take covers off and on, there really doesn't seem to be an automatic temperature, which gets too dangerous.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And when I heard this, I also thought, well, that's not true. Because another thing written in stone is that a fever is dangerous. And you shouldn't let it get to a certain level or you're going to cause brain damage. But there's a report from the American Academy of Pediatrics looking at vast literature on fever, which does not give a cutoff temperature and actually says fever phobia gets in the way. Important immune aspects of elevated temperature in terms of decreasing viral replication, activity against bacteria, That this sort of knee-jerk suppression of fever we're getting in our way a little bit. And if you look at the summary of this position paper from the American Academy of Pediatrics, this recommendation paper, they say, it's important to try to address discomfort during fever. And so Tylenol and ibuprofen have a role in that aspect. They should not be used just to decrease the temperature.
1: Hmm. And this goes for children and adults.
0: Well, this is the
1: Pediatric Academy. Yeah, right. Okay.
0: So I think you see fever most commonly in children and teens. You know, if you have an elderly person who has a very high fever, probably have to look at that a little bit more carefully. Mm -hmm. But the principle of saying, oh, we don't need to automatically stop it. And then we can take another step and say, this person looks sick. They're grumpy, they're pale, they're chilled. And those are all the, the qualities, the symptoms that come right at the beginning of a fever.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and say, well, the body is going to increase warmth until it reaches its determined core body temperature. So actually the best thing we can do is put a hat on them, give them some hot tea and a hot water bottle by their feet. Warm them up. Warm them up because if the body is trying to warm them up, let's help the body do that task.
1: It's interesting because as an adult, you know, let's say you get COVID, right? Or any viral illness, we've all been through that. You get chills and it makes you want to actually bundle up which is quite interesting, right? So it's almost like we have this other mechanism that seems counterintuitive. If if I'm getting hot and we're trying to bring the fever down, why would I be covering myself with blankets and everything else? But that's exactly what we do almost reflexively, which is kind of interesting. And again, that goes back to our observation of what is the role of a fever? Are we seeing the symptom or are we actually seeing the mechanism of healing? That's confronting in a protocolized system. But what you're saying is that that temperature is going to go up to some point. Let's say it's 101. The body's trying to get up there, and it's trying to get up there quickly. If we drop it down with an antipyretic, namely acetaminophen and ibuprofen are probably the two most common in the United States, we may actually inhibit whatever this process is by not permitting the body to raise itself up through its internal thermostat to a higher than normal baseline body temperature. That's what you're saying, right? Yes. Yes.
0: And there are some interesting studies. There's one done in a variety of anthroposophic clinics where really this observation about fever, about trying to accompany the fever in its course and not suppress it unless, or I would say lower it. But it is a kind of suppression, not interfering with that process unless somebody is really uncomfortable. And the study looked at earaches or ear infections and upper respiratory infections. And what's fascinating is that When you compare this to standard care, the number of days that patients need to first improvement in symptoms is actually faster with anthroposophic treatment than conventional treatment. And if you look at antibiotic prescription rates, they are a fraction. Like instead of 70% of patients getting antibiotics for an ear
1: infection, it's like 5%.
0: It's not nothing, but it's a fraction.
1: Versus maybe, I don't know. 80%. I mean there's probably some populations where or some clinics where every single child is going to be getting antibiotics. So if we could reduce that. Yeah, and one big theme that keeps coming up is antibiotic resistance.
0: Sure, cuz at some point we're in definite different clinical areas we're kind of running out of some options. And so I think that can nudge us in this direction, but also just trying to take this little bit broader view and say there is an aspect of the human body which works in time, which works with rhythms, which is closely connected to vitality. And how do we study that and understand it as a friend? It's really about growth and regeneration and lots of healing traditions. There's this understanding of the importance of vitality and growth forces. And I really think it's about this broader physiologic view.
1: A hey, quick break here. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with the one and only Dr. Adam Blanning I needed to tell you about one of our other sponsors. This is immune Intel HCC. My friends Mimi Linquist and Chase Ramey have put together this incredible product that has been clinically demonstrated to help clear persistent HPV. What is HPV? It's a virus that if your body, especially your immune system, is, poorly equipped to integrate the message of that virus, it can lead to disease, disruption in the architecture of the cells of the cervix, eventually leading to cervical cancer. So everybody's currently thoughtful about this HPV thing. The typical Western medical approach to this would be, oh, let's see if your body clears it. Oh, body hasn't cleared HPV. The cells are looking abnormal. You just bought yourself some painful biopsies and perhaps even an excisional procedure like a leap cervical knife cone. There's a whole bunch of issues that arise from that, including scarring of the cervical tissue, inadequate dilation, disrupting the birth process, et cetera. Not to mention that getting the excision doesn't clear you completely of HPV and of the likelihood of getting cervical cancer. So instead of going down that route, let's assume that maybe you're going to be going there eventually, right? Could we help support the body, integrate the message of HPV in order to help clear it there are things like smoking, poor sleep, high levels of stress, poor nutrition. These are all things that we know can help. This is the staples of a healthy lifestyle. Adding immune intel AHCC, which again has been clinically demonstrated to help clear persistent HPV, is going to save you a hell of a lot of trouble down the road. You owe it to yourself to try this out, go to themedicine.com slash products. That's t h e dot com slash products. Use code Beloved. You'll save 10% on your purchase. I'm so grateful to have them in my corner here because I have recommended this to so many people and the testimonials are 100% positive. They're like, you know... I didn't even have HPV, but now my lupus or my eczema, or whatever else, all of these immune endometriosis is another one. All of these immune dysregulatory issues start to get better when we can support the immune system by not only boosting the number of immune cells, but also their interconnectivity. That's exactly what Immune Intel HCC does. Again, go to themedicine.com. There's no E at the end of medicine. themedicine.com. Use code BELOVED and you will save yourself 10% on your purchase. All right. I think we need to get back to my conversation with Dr. Adam Blanning. I'm excited. I'm excited for you. Thanks for tuning in. What do you think happens when, you know, kind of feeding you softballs, because you are so versed in this, but when an OBGYN talks about pediatrics and fevers, and I am a dad, I've got two little girls. I oftentimes tell people, you know, When my little girls get a fever, let's look at Penny, the two-and-a-half-year-old. She gets these fevers and then wakes up the next day and she has more language. She's got more proprioceptive skills. I don't know. She's a little more daring in her balancing as she's going up the stairs or whatever. You know, it seems like something's happening. What is your sort of impression as to why sometimes these fevers are happening without necessarily some sort of infectious impulse for the immune system to go haywire? Well... We can connect it on a couple of levels, probably the core
0: one being that this aspect I spoke of in terms of our core spiritual individuality really works through warmth. I'll mention a couple studies. So you're feeding me softballs so I can geek out on <laughs>
1: <laughs> all the variations of warmth. One thing to geek out on. A lot of people have, you know, their sports things, they've got their video games. Adam Blanning sits at home and geeks out on fever.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's fascinating when you were working with observations and ideas and then you see it validated. Yeah. So in terms of warmth in the outside world, I will say there's a great study looking at college students who were going to evaluate somebody. And on the elevator ride up to where the study was to happen, the study coordinator who met them in the lobby needed to write something on a clipboard. So they asked the student to hold a cup of coffee. And the whole study was a randomization of whether the coffee was hot or iced. And they got off the elevator. They didn't even think the study had started. And then they watched a pre-recorded videotape of somebody being interviewed, and they had to rate them on different personality scales. And the people who held the hot cup of coffee consistently rated the person they were watching as more positive. Hmm. They were more interested. They were more generous in their assessment. They did a second part of the study where college students were asked to assess either a cold therapeutic pad or a hot therapeutic pad. And at the end, they said, thank you so much for your participation. As a thank you, we can offer you a drink now where we can give you this coupon to go later with a friend and get something together. The people who held the hot pads tended to choose the gift card to go later with someone else and share the experience. People who held the cold pads tended to choose the reward for themselves in the moment. So warmth influences how we approach the world. And I would say for children who have a strong fever and take a developmental step, I think they are warming into the world. (laughs) I think they become more interested, more engaged. There's another study that looks at high fever or strong fever in children who have different levels of autism spectrum. And they found that during a high fever, different behaviors in terms of restlessness, in terms of stereotypy, like repeated hand movements, arm flapping, or set phrases that were repeated over and over. There are four different qualities they looked at, and I don't know that I can pull them up from memory this moment, but they all improved during fever. This is per parent ratings. Then the parents rated it again when the fever was done, and then they rated it again seven days later. And the improvement for these children lasted. It wasn't just during the fever. So I would say for someone who is working very hard To find good orientation and good communication through their body, that this really strong warmth experience helps them shift and settle in some way so that they're really more in themselves. Those are some little studies. What I think is fascinating is I read some commentaries on that article about fever and autism, and people said, well, probably as part of the inflammatory cascade, there is something that is released. And if we could identify that specific aspect, we can synthesize it, and then we can give it as a medication to autistic children to stimulate their brains to work in a different way. And that might be true, but I think it's missing this bigger picture of how warmth works on a physical level, on a social level, on a meaning level, and really this kind of aspect of spiritual invitation that comes through a strong warmth experience as well. We just love to go to those little, little details. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, even the nature of how science is practiced, I'm using the big word science. You know, people say that's not backed by science or whatever. Well, in order for something to be studied so precisely, we have to lose every variable that might be interfering with our observation of the cause and effect between an intervention and whatever the outcome is. So the better researched a concept is concept, maybe not the right word, but an association is the less generalizable it tends to be because we get in the weeds because we want to eliminate all potential interference. There's all this noise in other words, and we want to just find the signal and sometimes that actually leads us down a path where, again, we're not practicing a holistic approach. We're going down to this granule size outcome without considering that there's a whole person with a whole story before and a whole story coming after. There's a dynamic process that gets missed whenever we try to do that.
0: I think there's been a good amount of work trying to just reframe things a little bit to say, how do we look at science? What does that mean? There are a variety of aspects where when somebody's choosing to take up a certain treatment, we could say that's the placebo effect, but it's also this aspect of what are they wanting? What are they seeking? And I don't know that we can always claim that when it's a randomized trial. I will say what is also interesting is there are some studies looking at treatment of chronic illness, usually over, I think, a four-year span, where it's things like low back pain and headache and... A variety of chronic illnesses. And then they did kind of quality of life measures, and that you could see that people's physical symptoms improved, but so did other measures of health and mood and things like that. Where, yes, it's nice if we change the back pain, but if we also change the back pain and people feel better overall and it's sustained for a longer period of time, that actually has real meaning. Yeah. Yeah. For the patients, it has real meaning for the whole health system economically, it makes a difference. I'll just throw in, there's colleagues in Europe who are looking at fever in very specific ways. One is Dr. David Martin in Germany, who has something called Fever App, which has been endorsed by the German Pediatric Association. You can actually download it to your smartphone, and it guides you through how to navigate a fever. And The insurance companies are interested in this because too many people go to the emergency room for a fever.
1: Yeah, of course. And
0: really it's not a big concern, but I also think when we hold this bigger perspective and create some space to see how our own bodies are working with things, it can be empowering because people have more knowledge about what's going on with their body and they also can lean into the process.
1: Real quickly, I mean, When we do get above, like, I don't know, let's say a person, even a little kid gets to like the 103, 104, like, oh, we're getting into that, you know, a temperature that might start degrading our proteins. I don't know. I mean, this sounds scary and febrile seizures come to mind. What is the approach that you might take for gradually, just gently lowering the seizure just a little bit, whether it's for comfort or because you are thinking, "Mm, the body's trying to go up, but maybe we should cap this off at some points because it's starting to get into that danger zone.
0: So a nice treatment is actually to take a little bit of lemon juice and some water, or if you don't have any lemons, a little bit of apple cider vinegar. And you put it in some water, you might put a couple of tablespoons. And then taking either some socks, large socks, or some washcloths, or a really nice way is if you're willing to sacrifice some adult socks, cut the toe off, and you put this in the lemon water. Ring it out so that it's damp, but not dripping anymore, mm-hmm. and then slip it up over the person's calves and have them rest with that, but under covers, You don't want them to catch a chill in this process. And it's pretty amazing. It really helps move warmth down into the legs and then release it. And you can see somebody's temperature drop a couple of degrees in probably 15 or 20 minutes. It doesn't stop the whole process, but it moves the warmth. I've done this with my own children where you say is somebody really just uncomfortable or is there a danger and when the temperature goes down it gives you a window to see how are they and if they totally perk up and they seem fine then you know that yes they needed a break from the warmth yeah and if the temperature drops and they are still confused or lethargic or things like that then of course you've got to do more assessment and get more yeah. medical attention but that's a very simple way to work with the dynamics of warmth. And a lot of the times I think you see that actually somebody's doing just fine and you can continue to let them working through this strong warmth process.
1: Working through the warmth. I think that that's a really beautiful summary of your sort of approach to fever is that there is some function to this. This is not a necessarily something that is going to be catastrophic. You mentioned menstrual cramps and what came to me when you said that was in the process of giving birth, of course, the uterus is contracting very hard, but it's functional. Yes, there's an experience of pain because we associate that cramping with pain, but there's actually also a function to this. This is actually a dynamic process whereby those contractions, which in the hypnobirthing and more natural birth community, they lose contractions altogether and they say surges. These are experiences of your baby being brought down and out into the world. And when you can reframe that, it actually makes it seem a lot less confronting or scary. So, to speak, for many women. And the same, I think, could be said for virtually everything, including fever, is to reframe our language around it a little bit. Let's help this person work through it versus let's battle it or let's, you know, knock it out with these antipyretics or whatever. That there's probably some reason the body is going through this. So, let's help to encourage that and facilitate that as opposed to halting it and wiping our brow, you know, close call. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. People actually get better faster. Yeah, I'm sure. When we
0: can reach in and understand the process, it's just interesting. We all have sort of different inclinations, too. There are some children who get a fever and burn very strongly for 24 hours, and they're done. And they may have a sibling who never really gets a fever, but is going to have that cold and nagging cough for two and a half weeks. Yeah, huh. It's not an absolute thing, but when you're looking for the gestures, they're definitely there.
1: Yeah. It does make me think about our two and a half year old. She went through periods of these fevers where my wife was really afraid and teething, especially. It's like, let's bring the fever down. Well, it's hundred and point five. It's barely a fever. And yes, she's a little bit uncomfortable, but is her body doing something? Is this fever not an infection, but perhaps a part of the remodeling of the entire jaw as a tooth is coming up through. And so, I mean, I'm making it very, I'm not over trying to overly confound that, But even on simple terms, yeah, maybe there's some function, which, you know, I think is a nice segue into kind of taking a step back. And you've mentioned a lot of childhood. I know a lot of things can happen in a person's life in childhood. And through some biographical work, you might be able to pair up things that appear later in a later epic, these seven-year epics, sort of in a mirror to what happened in the earlier epics. But without getting into the biographical work, I think what's important is, I want to be respectful of your time as well, but maybe you could just describe what Steiner's fourfold model of the human being, which can be applied to any living or non-living thing, really. Can you describe
0: that real quickly? You bet. And Steiner elaborated on this, but a fourfold model has been there for a long time. The, The Greeks talked about it too, and the Romans, and we can talk about it in terms of Four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. You could talk about it in terms of four humors, which I remember that being presented in medical school as really such a simplistic view of the human being, which, if we take it in a straightforward way and saying, yes, you need to be bled or you have too much black bile or things like that, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. It doesn't fit. Yeah.
1: It's easy to take Galen out of context, you know, have everything right. In fact, he may have done some damage as to how we now perceive of, you know, through our lens of biomedical thought contemporarily. But if you read that work and try to apply it to your, you know, modern textbook on physiology, it's going to sound like wackadoo, but there's probably more to it that we just don't really have context for. So go ahead, continue. I think in some ways it's really about four lenses Mm -hmm. or four interwaving
0: aspects. First is physical body. What can be measured? What can be x-rayed? What can be Biopsied and fixed and seen under a microscope. And this is really the substance of the body. And that's essential. Mm -hmm. We work with that all of the time. And knowing how that works is really important. But so things which can be easily quantifiably measured tend to fall into that category. And we tend to move to that category when we're doing testing and assessment in lots of different ways. I think a second level is more this aspect of time of how do we grow and change over time, a study of vitality, a study of growth, and that we really have regenerative forces in us. A very striking example for me is the difference between seeing someone who is in a coma versus someone who has died. There's just It's a different in vitality. It's different. Yeah. Something missing. (laughs) It has to do with gravity. It has to do with the fluid sinking. Yes all true, but there's also an aspect of the vitality is just different. And we can also say it's the difference between stone and a plant. A stone's not going to change in time. It doesn't have its own vitality, but a plant is changing. It's growing. It will look different in the future than it did in the past. So the second aspect of time and growth forces is really a whole aspect of the human being. And in anthroposophic medicine, that's usually described as parts of the etheric forces. Then a third aspect really has to do with emotion, with sensation, with particular types of ways that we sense things, that we feel things, specialized activities, where we can say the kidney is a very specific organ. It is working to filter fluid out and then absorb it back in. And actually, it's not so much an excretion organ, it's a sensing organ up we release and then we absorb 90% of it back. Mm. It's not a very efficient technical model.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of fluid movement there without a lot it's a of lot output. A lot of fluid movement
0: for just <laughs> choosing, you know. If, if you were looking for a book on your bookcase, you wouldn't take 10 books off and then put 9 of them back. <laughs> not routinely probably. Yeah. Or what is the difference between somebody who has blood pressure, which is very much related to stress and anxiety and they get pale and it's terrible white coat hypertension versus somebody who is rounder and red and never feels whether their blood pressure is high and nothing phases them. Those are different types of Absolutely. blood pressure.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this is more in this sensation, uh, emotional, and then also particular gestures or archetypes of physiology. And in anthroposophic medicine, that's spoken about as astral forces. And then the fourth aspect is really this spiritual aspect of who someone is as an individuality, the I. Yeah. And the anthroposophic word for that is the I, because the organ that we see with the eye, but the capital letter I, because that's a word that we can only use in reference to ourselves.
1: So we've got the solid... We've got the mineral body, I think is maybe a way to put it. Mm -hmm. Then we have the plant kingdom in our classification system, but obviously there's a spectrum there. That's where plants have an etheric force, which separates it from the rock. It's just something we intuitively get. But then obviously Labradors or cows are separate from the plants because they seem to have this feeling component. Plants are intelligent, they're thinking, sensing beings, but the feeling and perhaps the emotional side of the experience. There's something different in a cow that you don't get with a plant. And then the humans, you have the ability to be aware of this entire sort of hierarchy, so to speak. It's not really a hierarchy, but the word I think mm-hmm. serves. Yeah. So this is the fourfold model. Go ahead. I'm sure you were going to tie it all together. We could say
0: substance, growth, awareness, self-awareness. Mm, I love that. Would be another way to describe it. That step from plants to animals, we also see amazing kind of specialization and differentiation in animals. They can do incredible things. Uh, Dolphins swim as masters. A beaver can cut down trees beautifully. A cow can chew, cud, and digest grass in a way that certainly no human being can do. And then as human beings, we're actually not so specialized. We're not as good at swimming or is it cutting down trees or digesting as these other things. But we have many different capacities within us and this this ability to be reflective about what we're doing and intentional in a way that's beyond an instinctive capacity. And that's that spiritual aspect of not only what am I doing, but why am I doing it? And what is unique for my path?
1: Yeah. I think this is really the crux. And this is also, I think, maybe the most confronting thing, because we're not used to thinking of these various um, energetic bodies that kind of govern over who we are and how we compare to the rest of our biological brethren around us. When people use the word soul, or when Steiner uses the words body, soul, spirit, what is he referring to with soul and spirit? I think these words have also become kind of buzzy, like holistic, you know? What would Steiner say about the soul and spirit as it pertains to this fourfold model? Steiner
0: would say that the body is really the physicality and this aspect of growth and changing physiology. Steiner describes the soul as being the aspect of us which relates more to emotion and sensation, to what he also describes as the astral body. And then he describes spirit as specifically being related to the eye,
1: Mm.
0: this most independent kernel, this aspect inside of us.
1: Yeah, I have so many questions about that, but it's because I'm a student of this and I'm trying to go further. But I'm going to pause on that because we could get into, I mean, this is an evolving terrain, I'm sure, for you as well, as you have more experience. One thing I did want to bring up is that people often talk about the mind-body connection. I think that's part of the way there. But I read a really interesting quote from Steiner recently that said that the mind is the sensing organ for thoughts and that consciousness is the synthesis of that, the precepts and the concepts. So what we're observing and what we're our sort of synthesis of those ideas, putting all of that together, that is consciousness. But the mind and body alone wouldn't be enough. Do you have any reflections on that? I just feel like this mind-body piece is really, really hot right now.
0: I think it's really hot. I think we have to be a little bit careful with it because it tends to separate things again.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. I've got my consciousness and I've got my body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I work on one or the other. But really, the, these are flowing into each other all of the time. And we tend to think about mind as being the part of us which is consciously accessible through thought. But even if we just look at our nervous system, we've got our brain which is much more related to this consciousness aspect. But then we've got a sympathetic nervous system, which is accessible to consciousness, but it's doing a lot of things on its own. And then we've got a parasympathetic nervous system, which is mostly unconscious. And, you know, estimations that if you look at the ganglion of the parasympathetic nervous system, there's as many nerves there as there are in the central nervous system. So I think that's just a beautiful picture of this bridging and the parts that we can consciously feel, that's where we tend to put all of our eggs in the basket. But it's just a part in the same way that we could say only the parts of the human being that I can physically, chemically test are real and nothing else is real. That's a part, but it's not the whole reality. Very practically, I would just say you can have somebody be very sick physically and finding tremendous meaning and importance in what they're doing. And you can have somebody be physically well and not be finding that purpose and connection and intention because we tend to equate one with the other. And they are different ends of this bridge. It's so nice to be trying to understand that bridge so that we can see, is this a moment where I really need to focus on physical testing and control this process, guide this process? Or is this a time when I really just need to respect and honor this person's experience?
1: Yeah. The study of esotericism in general tends to lead down these paths where it's, you've got more questions than answers at the end of that particular conversation. I remembered the quote, by the way, it was that thinking is the sense organ for concepts and ideas, which I think is a really fascinating, tremendously difficult thing to acquire and then to kind of go forth with. But these little kernels, I think, really will help us, I think, bring forth a, a more comprehensive, integrative approach to healing. So thank you for doing your best in answering some of these hard questions. I did have one final question, because I think a lot of people are going to be wondering, when you said natural remedies earlier, and then you also used the word potentized, is that the potentized? Is that the word yeah, you potentized. used? Yeah, mm-hmm. potentized. We are talking about dilutional remedies, and some people immediately go to homeopathy, but the approach to remedies through the lens of anthroposophic medicine is quite different from traditional homeopathy. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, I remember we had a great pharmacist, I can't remember his name, at our training week. Albert Schmidley. Albert Schmidley. What a great guy. He did a really interesting rendition as to how some of these remedies, which are all plant-derived, mostly plant-derived, some of them also just mineral-derived, from the sensing organs, the roots, the sort of flow structures. Oh, do I have that right? The roots are the sensing. And then we have the metabolic components, which are our flowers and buds. And then we have this sort of this flow, this giant stem in a sunflower, a very, very tiny stem in your petunias. He broke that down as a means of trying to understand from a pharmacologic standpoint how these remedies are created. Can you maybe assuage some people's hesitations around a dilutional therapy, maybe through the lens of what Albert was teaching us at a Training which, which, by the way, was way over my head, but I was like, this guy might be a genius, and I need to study this a little <laughs> harder. So I immediately went home and bought everything Goethe, well, at least that was available you know, for trade paperback from Goethe and his study of plants in order to better understand this. But... Anyways, this will be our final question, Adam. I appreciate your time today.
0: You bet. Well, let's see. In terms of the preparation of the medicines, there is this process, this science, this patterning of saying, oh, again, there's a relationship between the human being and the plant and the natural world. And different parts of the plant work in a process way, in a gesture way, we could say in an energetic way with different parts of the human being. So that's one aspect. It's totally fascinating to say, oh, if I really want to work with the middle part of the human being, with the lungs especially, or maybe the heart and the circulation, then a a plant's leaves could be particularly helpful. Or if I want to work more with the metabolism and the digestion, using the flower or the fruit or the seed can be more helpful. So that's one aspect. I guess in terms of things which have been prepared in a potentized manner, which are diluted, the key aspect there, I think, is, this is one of my favorite sentences in anthroposophic medicine, which comes from Rudolf Steiner, is that substance is a process come to rest.
1: Mm. Say that, so that one more time.
0: A substance, substance is a process come to rest. So... That's not so hard if we think about a mineral, a stone, because at some point it formed out of a dynamic process. But that was a long time ago. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: If we think about a plant, maybe that's not so hard because we can say, yeah, a plant is very vital. It's been growing over the season, or if it's a perennial, it's been growing over multiple seasons. But I can see that any substance that I can take from a plant It was in a dynamic growth process at some point. And so it's possible to understand how a process goes into substance. And then it's also possible to understand how something which has found a fixed form and substance can be slightly loosened to come back into a process state, to have some flexibility. It relates a little bit, maybe, to when I spoke about biographical times that we dissolve a little and get disoriented. (laughs) So there are a lot of anthroposophic medicines where a substance is taken and then it is worked with in different ways. Sometimes it's diluted in water. Sometimes it is burned to an ash. Sometimes it goes through a kind of warming and almost a digestion process. And then often the substance is diluted to try and lift it back into this state where it is more flexible and process-oriented. Which if we're just thinking about the molecules, that doesn't make sense. But that's because that's just one end of a spectrum. That's only looking at the substance, and it's not able to encompass the process aspect. What you mentioned earlier of all of these healing plants that have been used for thousands of years we say, well, how did people know how to use these things? Because there wasn't any kind of chemical analysis available at that time. They were understanding the process of the plant. And whether that was an intuitive feeling or whether that was something that was developed over time through experience or both, or who knows what other aspects, that's really where this delusional aspect is very helpful. I had a fascinating conversation with someone in the last few weeks who actually works very strongly in the pharmacy and pharmacy research field and had brought a family member to see me for a chronic condition. And I could see he was really grappling with this. And he said, well, we're coming because we have family members who have been treated this way. And in their family, this problem has gone. Mm. And really, the most important evidence is what's the end result of the process. And I thought it was beautiful. He said this about three times during our session together, that trying to understand that there's something that can happen in terms of a living shift, a flexibility, a change, an enlivening that's working through a different dynamic. He could sense that it's possible, but he couldn't quite step out of a pharmacy (laughs) mode. But he wanted to go there in order to help this person and his family. I think anthroposophic medicine has been working hard for a hundred years to really develop that pathway.
1: Yeah. Well, as a means of kind of synthesizing everything we've talked about, I want to give you like a quick little case study. And that is, you know, in the United States specifically, in most of the quote Western or developed world, autoimmune conditions, they're kind of running rampant. And in my world, I've got thyroids, I've got fertility issues, I've got endometriosis, all these other things and I've, we don't really have a great answer for it. So we've talked about these different epics, and now we've talked about some of the remedies. We also talked a little bit about the biographical work that an anthroposophic medicine doc you know, might perform. And I wanted to give people sort of an idea as to how this might all be synthesized together. And after training week, I kind of got heavy into the sort of the remedies, so to speak, for autoimmune conditions. And what I learned was that at some point during these early epochs, and the epics again are seven years so roughly you know birth to 7 7 to 14 14 to 21 and you notice that like you get your second set of teeth around age 7 you know i mean there, sexual maturity around age 14 coming of age mm-hmm. 21 and then you hit your freedom that's where that personal responsibility piece really starts to stick maybe not until age 28 and of course we have ideas as to how the frontal cortex forms and we make more responsible decisions into our 20s etc. But let's say that something happens during this, what they call individuation process, whereby you're becoming imbued and there's this beautiful orchestration between the physical, the etheric, the astral, and the eye, this fourfold model that you presented earlier. From what I've read, and I'm not prescribing these remedies yet because I don't understand the process and I like to really understand why. However, in reading about autoimmune diseases seen through the anthroposophic lens and the big old fat textbook that I have now to accompany my studies, it's usually a matter of reinforcing the integration of the eye in these autoimmune processes through something like phosphorus, mistletoe, or even quartz. Can you maybe try to break down what I just said? Because I know what I read, but I want people to understand how you as a physician might help to, without really being able to know the patient entirely, maybe you can help them understand why those remedies are necessarily beneficial for something that happened way long ago that you're actually experiencing painfully or otherwise now. This is the final part of our interview, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have to do another part. I guess so, yeah.
0: (laughs) That would be fun to do. So if someone has an autoimmune illness, going through these four levels, we could say on a physical testing level, yes, we check a SED rate, we check a CRP, we're looking for other markers, you know, is this lupus, is this rheumatoid arthritis? Those are very
1: helpful. Yeah. Antibodies directed towards our healthy tissues. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Those markers are very helpful. You need that information. So the second level is helping someone looking at time and release. A third level can be to say there's inflammation happening, which is really not consciously guided fully. And sometimes that happens because there's a chronic irritation. Like let's say the association between gluten sensitivity or celiac disease and then an autoimmune thyroiditis, where the immune system is constantly being irritated, constantly being challenged. And in that process, it gets a little bit misguided, so that it's reacting, but without full intention. And so trying to see, well, what's the pattern that's happening here over and over again? And how can we understand and re-guide that pattern? And then a final aspect can be, or maybe it's the first aspect, is to say, how can we really help someone strengthen to know what is their intention? How do we help strengthen their eye? Because some of the medicines that you mentioned in terms of phosphorus or quartz, these are very important things therapeutically that can help us feel really who we are and where our boundary is. And sometimes there are relationships between autoimmune illnesses and shocks or trauma or something happened, and we weren't really able to be self-defining after that point. Or we've been so busy pleasing and taking care of other people that we've lost our own ability to self-define and self-care. So this aspect of treating the eye with these strengthening remedies is really trying to say, let's also help support the person who's guiding the ship. And that's important for future as well, because what's happening is inflammation at the moment. That may be something that's washed downstream from experiences or imbalances of last week or last month or a decade ago, and how do we change course so that it's really going to be different in future?
1: Wow. Well, there's a lot more, of course, to unpack with that. But, you know, if you're listening out there and this is all new to you, you can understand that there's quite a bit of difference between what, Adam, what you just said, and the quick diagnosis, take this pill. Or have this surgery approach, which may be helpful for a lot of people, but is it really getting at what happened across the whole journey that brought you here into my office that may be contributing to this, which you could call it root cause or whatever else, but it's actually even broader than that. That's what I I love so much about what I'm learning to do with your help. And I think as a society, if we can start to wrap our heads around the possibility that, hey, maybe we've reached the limits, so to speak of what the strictly allopathic model, the fast medicine model is able to offer us, if we could take a step back and just be willing to say, hey, let's keep this, let's integrate it into a more whole person approach. Could we see better results? We certainly don't have anything to lose. And I think everybody, you probably have a very busy practice because you're so, I don't want to say good bedside manner because it's so cliche, but you have like this warmth about you where, Where in order to be able to share some of these vulnerable things, maybe it's past traumas, whatever else, I think it also is reflected in just how you show up as a teacher is you're so warm and you just seem like you're safe to share these things with. And I think that that's also lacking in the fast medical model where you get to see your doctor. I remember reading a British medical journal study that showed that in the average primary care visit, that a patient gets 22 seconds to speak before their doctor jumps in and starts (laughs) to diagnose and treat their issue, you know. And so what you're describing takes a lot of time, but I think it also would be very therapeutic for us as physicians to be able to really get to know a person better before we start trying to implement tools. So I said a lot there. All of it is to say thank you for showing up in the way that you do and for spending time with me today. Is there any final thoughts or do you want to maybe direct people towards Pam in order to, you know, maybe there's somebody out there that wants to join us next year for training week or otherwise? Absolutely. Well, the training conference that Nathan
0: described, it's happening early May. It'll be in Colorado this year. It's moving around a little bit. And a mentor told me, if you want to find water, don't dig a bunch of holes, dig one deep hole. (laughs) And we can't do that every day. We can't do that all the time. Rednisone is still really important for autoimmune illness at different times. But there are so many more options and viewpoints for it. And you get to the place where you say, there's got to be more than just another course of prednisone. And I think when you're exploring these broader aspects of medicine, it doesn't mean that you have to change everything that you're doing. It can just be saying, there are some times with some patients that I would like to dig deeper. And I'd like to have some guidance and community to be able to explore that. Because it has huge meaning for the people who can do that. And I really think as a practitioner, it brings great meaning. And I started by saying, I think anthroposophic medicine is actually a very optimistic medicine, because I think you see these processes of development and change and say, what I'm doing has meaning. I love doing this.
1: Well, thank you so much, Adam. Where can people go? I mean, where would you like them to go, either to reach out to you with questions or to maybe even join us? I'd be fun to meet somebody who's a listener of the show. Maybe I'll be the vanguard here for the OBGN <laughs> community too.
0: <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. You can go to the website, which is Anthroposophic Medicine. That's A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-S-O-P-H-I-C Medicine. There's also an international website, which is AnthroMedics, which has a lot of good introductory material. Start there. Those are good places. And happy to answer any questions and would love to see people at the training course next year or some of the webinars and things that we do during the rest of the year as well.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Adam. I'll see you actually tomorrow night for class.
0: We'll keep studying.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. If you want to find Adam, check out the show notes. He's got a book. If you want to enroll in anthroposophic medicine and join my little family over here, reach out. I'll definitely set you up. Adam is a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much, Adam. You're so gracious with your time. Guys, support the show. If something here landed for you, share it with somebody that you love. If you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, go there. It takes 15 seconds. You wouldn't believe how much it helps us. And then lastly, support our sponsors, Fullwell Fertility. Get yourself prenatal vitamins, men's virility vitamins, biooptimizers, their magnesium breakthrough, their sleep breakthrough, their blood sugar breakthrough. So many options there. BirthFit with code BELOVED at birthfit.com. You're going to get one month free access to the B community, Immune Intel, AHCC. I've said so much about this company. I love this company. I've got bottles in my medicine cabinet at all times. You owe yourself two to three month course of Immune Intel HCC if you've got persistent HPV. But even if you don't, if you have any other inflammatory issues or immune dysregulatory issues, try this out. Let me know how it works. You're not going to regret it. Last but not least, Organifi. Pick up their gold chocolate latte loaded with, with turmeric, with functional mushrooms, etc. Help you ease into sleep at the end of the night. Loaded with nutrition. Organifi.com beloved to save 20% on your purchase there. I'm Nathan Riley. Nothing you heard here is medical advice. This is merely education, entertainment. I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope it's entertaining you. If you do need medical advice, though, find me at BelovedHolistics.com. I'm still accepting people into my collaborator program. I'm still accepting private clients, Um, although it's coming to a point now where I have to only focus on the people that buy packages with me. But you can find all of that at my website. I'm also going to be launching the PRP Fertility Program, which includes consultation with me, seven other renowned practitioners, a buttload of supplements and vitamins and books and detox protocol and stool analysis and Dutch report biogeometry devices, you get it all as a part of the program. So if you're interested in that before it launches on January 1st, you can pre-enroll for a small down payment and we'll we'll get you into that first six-person cohort. Also on the horizon here, check out my (laughs) What is Coming, the Born Free Method is a online course that I'm putting together with the help of Sarah Rosser. You're not going to want to miss that. That is a behemoth. It's like a childbirth education course steroids. It's everything you ever could have wanted from a childbirth education course, but you know, you just didn't get your questions answered because a $200 course just doesn't cut it. And then lastly, at the Czech Institute, I've just released my natural fertility program. It's only 130 bucks and it it has a 150 page manual that comes with it. It's basically my first book. So for $130, you get everything you're going to ever want to know about the Western Medical Fertility Workup, and then, of course, the application of the CHECK system, the Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Program, to get your body working on all cylinders so that you can either conceive naturally or increase the likelihood of you getting pregnant when you go down the route of IVF or IUI. That course, by the way, is included in the price of my PRP Fertility Program. So All of that is available at BelovedHolistics.com. I'm so stoked to be bringing JW Ross onto my next episode, which is the first one of the new year. It'll be 2023 when you hear this. On the 4th of January, JW Ross, the guy who created and oversees the entire manufacturing process of Feel Free, one of my favorite daily tonics. He's going to be chatting all about Feel Free, Creatum, Kava. An awesome story that guy has. So I will see you guys all back here next week on the Holistic of a podcast with Mr. J.W. Ross. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.